That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Here we go with yet another episode of Hollywood and Levine. I am Ken Levine, your podcast host. Thanks so much for listening. This week I want to do another one of my studio tours. I do this about uh, once every six months or so because, well, quite frankly, I'm going to run out of studios. But I did it with 20th Century Fox and I did it with Paramount. And this week I would like to talk about MGM the Metro-Golden-Mayer Studios in Culver City, and uh, a little bit of uh, the, the personal side of the lot. Uh, I had a chance to spend a few years there, so I'll tell you some of my stories along with some history along the way. So that's what we're going to do this week, MGM, this week on Hollywood and Levine. Okay, a little history. Like I said, it's in Culver City, California. And if you've never been to Los Angeles, it's not Hollywood. It's probably about 15 miles away from Hollywood. It's actually much closer to LAX uh, than it is to Hollywood. But uh, it was founded in 1912, and MGM owned it from 1924 to 1986. And I had a chance to be on the lot uh, during the the very end of that era. It really was the end of the golden era, and we'll talk about that as we continue. But uh, I've had some history with MGM. I have to be honest with you, though, and that... It's not great history. (laughs) I have not had great experiences on that lot. It's a very cool lot, and I've met some very interesting people, but personally, like I say, career-wise, this was not always the happiest place for me to be. It really started when David and I wrote the movies, by David, I mean David Isaacs, wrote the movie Volunteers, And uh, we wrote it for a very small company, and it was uh, overseen by Walter Parks, who is now a big mucky muck in show business. Yeah, we knew him when. So we wrote Volunteers, and we sold it to MGM. So it's great, okay? This is our first big movie sale. Well, right away they go and they get a director, Carl Gottlieb, who uh, liked our script, but uh, eh, tweaked it a a little bit. 
Um, we weren't in love with that, but uh, he tweaked it a little. And then he left the project, and for whatever reason, they decided to have James Comack directed. Now, James Comack, if the name seems somewhat familiar to you, was a TV producer who enjoyed quite a bit of success with Welcome Back, Cotter, and Chico and the Man. As a director, ugh. Well, he decided to get his own writer, and he got a writer whose name I will not mention, but this guy, and he was known for schlock. His movies were just terrible. So this guy did a complete rewrite on our script, and... It was just just horrifying. I just don't know how to say it other than that. Uh, David and I were ready to take our names off of it because it was just so vile and disgusting. Well, apparently MGM thought that too and threw the script into turnaround, fired Comac and just said, ah, this is now a complete, utter, steaming piece of shit. We want nothing to do with it. And so they were swept away, and Walter took it to HBO, and eventually it got made through HBO TriStar, and that's Volunteers with Tom Hanks and John Candy, but it was not made at MGM. Then, early in our career, this was like about 1976, and we had only been selling for less than a year at this point, we got an assignment on an NBC show called The Practice. And it's not The Practice that you may have remembered, which was the one-hour legal David Kelly show. No, this was a half-hour multi-camera show that starred Danny Thomas. If you've ever seen Becker, it was Becker. He was basically Becker. He was this crusty curmudgeon doctor in New York. And in this version, he had a son who was a Park Avenue doctor and his family. But it's very basically similar to Becker. And it was created and written by a marvelous writer named Steve Gordon. Steve Gordon wrote and directed Arthur. This guy wrote some of the best dialogue I had ever heard. And when I'm writing dialogue, to this day, I have Steve Gordon in my head trying to replicate the kind of things that he used to do. But for him, it was like effortless. A very sad story, though, of course, uh, he passed away. He had a heart attack and died in his early 40s shortly after Arthur took off, and he would have been an A-list writer. He would have been the Aaron Sorkin of comedy, but uh, alas, he passed away way too young. Anyway, uh, we met Steve Gordon as a result of doing this assignment of The Practice. Now, The Practice was picked up originally as a mid-season show on NBC, and then it was picked up for the fall, later on that year. And for the first run, the first 13, uh, Steve Gordon basically ran the show. He was the the showrunner. And it was a Wit Thomas show. Uh, 
Wit Thomas, as in Tony Thomas, as in Danny Thomas. Yeah, yeah, you get the connection. Well, when it came back in the fall, uh, Steve did not want to be the day-to-day showrunner, so he was the executive producer overseeing it, and other writers were brought in. So we go and we do a draft of the practice. We go in to get our notes, and Steve Gordon is not there. He's back in New York. So Paul Witt and Tony Thomas are giving us their notes. Let me just say they hated it up to and including the title page. (laughs) We'd never experienced anything like this before. They hated everything. We're just getting note after note. No, we wouldn't do this. No, lunch bit sucks. No, no, no. And so, you know, we were pummeled. We had tons and tons of notes to do. And uh, when we were leaving, I accidentally picked up Tony Thomas's script and took it home. And (laughs) it was even worse than I thought. Because you're looking over each page and he's writing shit and he's drawing lines through things. He absolutely hated it. So we knew, okay, we have pretty much a page one rewrite to do. And then we get a call from Steve Gordon. And Steve said, uh, hey, I read your script. And we said, oh, okay, uh, give us uh, your notes, uh, pile on. But uh, we're changing pretty much everything, so I don't know. But, you know, have at it. And he goes, what are you talking about? And I said, well, Paul and Tony gave us notes and pretty much hated everything. And Steve Gordon said, don't touch this script. This is the best first draft I've ever seen. No, no, I'll tell them to go screw themselves. This is fantastic. So needless to say, that was a great call. And it uh, established, certainly from my end, a warm and loving friendship for the rest of his life. Oh, my God, I can't tell you how much that call meant to me. So we did just a couple of tiny things, and we turned the script back in about a week later. And when we walked in the main office, we saw that some of the writers were just kind of sitting out, hanging in the lobby, chatting up the receptionist. And it's like 2.30 in the afternoon. And we turn in the script and they go, okay, great. Thank you, guys. And then we left. I walked out and I said to David, I think the show's been canceled. (laughs) It's like, why aren't they busily working? Or why aren't they on the stage looking at a run-through? What's happening here? This is like the last day of school. And so we got home. I called my agent. I said, would you check on the practice to see if there has been... Uh, any kind of move. And she calls back half hour later saying, yeah, they canceled the show (laughs) this morning. So eh, I was right. And for all the work we did on that episode, it never got produced. And that, of course, was produced at MGM. Now we move to 1980. We finished MASH. We had spent a few years on the 20th Century Fox lot, which we loved. And we got a deal, a development deal, from Lorimar. 
And Lorimar at the time was an independent production company. Primarily, they specialized in one-hour primetime soap operas. Dallas was theirs, and Knott's Landing was theirs. And they wanted to get into comedy. So they made a deal with me and David to create series, and we would be exclusive to Lorimar. And so we moved onto the lot. Now, (laughs) the first thing that happened was there wasn't really an office for us. So we had to kind of wait it out. And then they said, well, you can go off the lot uh, in a real estate uh, agency. We have a couple of glass cubicles where some of our salespeople are. You can use that as an office. We said, "Uh, no. We spent like one day there. We're like, no. This is not conducive to writing comedy. So then they said, okay, we have an office for you. And it is in the Garland building. All of the buildings at MGM were named after stars. Same thing with uh, Paramount. A lot of lots did that. So we're uh, sent to the Garland building and office 208. So we go and, yeah, okay, that's a pretty nice office. And we're walking through it going, well, I don't think we need to have the desk positioned here. And we don't need to have that. Maybe we could, like, move this around. It would be a little more comfortable. We could see the window better. And guy walks in, and it had been his office. And we knew him. He was a producer. We knew him. And he was a friend. And he was like, what are you guys doing in here? That was an awkward moment because we realized, oh, they were not going to pick up his deal. But apparently, they didn't bother to inform him of this. And this is the way he finds out that he's being dumped by Lorimar great company. This tells you something the first week, doesn't it, about this company? So uh, like I said, yes, that was a very awkward moment. So he moves out and we move in. We were on the second floor and right below us was Bo Derrick and John Derrick. And this was very shortly after she became a big star doing 10 And so you got a chance to see Bo Derek walking around most of the time. That was that was kind of fun. Other movies that they were making during that time uh, included Poltergeist. What was fun is you'd like walk on the lot, and all of a sudden there were these weird, entangled, ornate trees and weird props and things for poltergeist that was that was kind of bizarre and fun and really kind of gives you the feeling of being on a studio lot here's the best part though of the mgm lot the commissary this is 1980 and 1981 so like i said it was like the very end of the golden age 
of MGM. They still had a movie that was in pre-production that was going to be directed by George Cukor. I mean, George Cukor, who directed tons of great movies in the 40s and 50s and 60s. And there he was. There he was every day. And the movie was called, I think, Rich and Famous, and it starred uh, Jacqueline Bissett and Candace Bergen. And you would see them come into the commissary every day. It's a good reason to come into the commissary every day to eat there, don't you think? It's like, well, you want to eat at that Italian restaurant across? No, let's go to the commissary again. Yeah, well, we've eaten the same salad. We're going to the commissary. I have to say that Candace Bergen, again, this is 1980, was very beautiful, extremely beautiful. But Jacqueline Bissett was luminous, luminous. There was something about her. She walked in a room and you could hear a celestial choir. It was that glowing she was she was amazing also billy wilder and his writing partner ial diamond were making their final movie and they were in pre-production we would see them every day as billy wilder walking by the table uh the movie was called buddy buddy and it eventually went into production and I got a chance one day, it was one Friday afternoon when we had finished writing whatever we were writing. And David decided to go home and I figure, well, I'm going to just take a shot here. I'm going to walk over to the stage that they're doing Buddy Buddy and see if I can stand in the shadows and watch Billy Wilder direct. So I go to the sound stage, and the security was way more lax than it is now. That's for damn sure. I just walked right in. Red light wasn't on. They weren't shooting. So I just, like, walked right in, kind of wandered through this cavernous sound stage until I saw the corner where all the lights were and where they were filming. And I walked over, and there was Billy Wilder just sitting on a director's chair and they were setting the lights for a particular scene with Jack Lemon. And I don't know what possessed me to do this because this is not me normally, but Billy Wilder is like my all time favorite writer director. He's a God, an absolute God to me. So I went up and I introduced myself and of course I dropped the mash card <laughs> You know, that kind of gives you a little bit of credibility. And he asked me about Larry Gelbart, and we were talking, and just charming chit-chat. And he said, here, sit, sit, join me. Like, I'm sitting next to Billy Wilder. And uh, at one point, uh, (laughs) this was great. One of the crew people came up to him. The scene they were going to film was that Jack Lemon was tied to a chair and he squirms over to a wall heating unit and with his foot, he turns it on 
and it glows, and he leans over and lets the filament burn through the rope, and that's how he escapes. So the crew guy says, oh, Mr. Wilder, we got a problem. Um, that's uh, not the way those uh, heating units work, sir. You see, uh, when you turn it on, it needs time for the filaments to warm up some. So it's probably a, uh, say, 30-second to 45-second lapse between the time uh, that uh, Mr. Lemon would turn it on and the uh, filaments would glow uh, sufficiently for your cameras, Mr. Wilder. (laughs) And Billy Wilder looks at him and he goes, Young man, we are making movie magic here. Do you ever notice that there is always a parking space right in front and that young couples in a restaurant always get the best window table? We are making movie magic. The filament will go on instantly. (laughs) Yes, sir. Yes, sir, Mr. Wilder. And he walked away. That was a great moment. And then then Jack Lemon comes over and Jack goes, Hey, uh... Uh, Billy, what if I did this and what if I did this and that? And uh, he had all this business and everything. And Wilder listened to him and nodded and nodded and goes, "I don't. Th- I think we're going to do it uh, as written." But but thank you. I I really appreciate that, Jack. And so Jack Lemon walked away, <laughs> and Billy Wilder turns to me and just goes, "Madness, just madness." So I got a chance to watch them film a scene of Buddy Buddy. Unfortunately, uh, it was a terrible movie and it was the last movie, so it's not a classic that uh, anyone is going to remember. Okay, if you're of a certain age, I'm not quite sure how you are going to respond to this. If you are okay, Boomer... (laughs) That's a nice way of putting it. If you're an old guy like me and you remember The Adventures of Superman, the show from the 50s, remember Noelle Neal who played Lois Lane, how hot she was? Noelle Neal, by 1980, was a secretary on the MGM lot. And she had her hair pulled back And she was just somebody's secretary on the MGM lot. And we would see her all the time. And again, at the commissary, there she would be. And we were like in awe because as kids growing up, that's our Lois Lane. But it was just so weird that, oh, God, she's now a secretary there. One thing that I loved about the MGM lot was the New York Street. At one time, they had tons and tons of back lots, but they sold that off in the 40s and 50s, and it's now housing developments. Those those things are long gone. But they have a great New York street that you see in so many movies and TV shows. The Man from Uncle, Peter Gunn. Twilight Zone. They filmed the Twilight Zone at MGM. And you see that New York Street dressed up in probably 15 different episodes. 
So we leave Lorimar after a couple of years. We join Cheers. We decide to uh, leave a development deal and uh, produce a brand new show called Cheers, which I think probably in retrospect was a good move. But we hadn't really done anything on that lot for years and years. And then I became a director. So now we're talking the mid to late 90s, like 15, 16 years later. And I get an assignment to direct a couple of episodes of a series called Ask Harriet, which was on Fox in the early days of Fox. And if you haven't heard of it, don't feel bad. Uh, It was a terrible show, just terrible. It was basically trying to do Tootsie, but the writing was awful. There were some very good people who were in the cast. I just felt terrible for them. Julie Benz, who later went on to do Dexter. She was Rita on Dexter. And uh, Willie Garson, oh, my God, what a wonderful actor. What a dear, sweet man. And he passed away last year. But we had good people on that. (laughs) But, oh, man. So I'm directing a couple of episodes of this show. And I'm at loggerheads with the writers. Like I said, it was not a pleasant experience. And there was a woman who was basically auditing. She was the wife of a studio executive. And gee, I wonder how she got this job. But she got an assignment to direct an episode of Ask Harriet. Husband probably said, okay, okay, you want to direct something? Fine, what's the worst fucking show that we have? Ask Harriet, you can direct an Ask Harriet. She never directed anything. But she basically shadowed me for a couple of weeks while I was directing this show. And I hear about this after. So I do two shows in a row, and then I leave for good. And she comes in the next Monday, and it's the first day on the stage. (laughs) And she gathers the actors and says, so, like, what happens now? You guys all just sort of walk around, and I tell you that I like it? The cast said, we're going to take a 10. They marched up to the showrunner and said, we either quit or you get a real director. But uh, that was my experience on Ask Harriet. Gracie Films, the Jim Brooks company, started at 20th Century Fox. And I think it's pretty much back there because that's where The Simpsons has uh, always made its home. But at the time, he was really blowing up as a movie producer, director. And he got a big deal at MGM. And he did broadcast news, uh, Terms of Endearment, which was his big Oscar-winning movie. He did not do. That was not part of this deal. But... uh, All the other subsequent movies were. So he had offices at MGM. And once a year, he would have a big Christmas party. 
Ironically, it was always in December. When the Christmas parties started at Fox, it was basically just their bungalow, the Simpsons bungalow. So there were like three or four rooms and maybe 50, 60 people involved. David and I were involved because we wrote for The Simpsons and also for uh, the Tracy Ullman show, which was done at 20th Century Fox. And then when he moved over to MGM, he also had a couple of TV shows going. One was Sibs, which was a show about uh, adult sisters, and that was Marsha Mason, Margaret Collin, Jamie Gertz, Alex Rocco was in that show. And I consulted one night a week on that. So one night a week, I was over at MGM. And um, those run-throughs sometimes were a little rugged. Uh, Marsha Mason was a force to be reckoned with. Is that a nice way of putting it? Yeah, I think that's... Let's leave it at that. Uh, But I would do that. And they also had a show, I don't remember the name of it, but uh, it was William Devane and he was a tennis pro or something. I, I don't know. So he had TV shows going and he had movies going and the Christmas party just got bigger and bigger and bigger because Gracie Films just kept expanding. And it got to the point where after five or six years... He took over the entire lot. It would be a Sunday afternoon, evening party at like 5 o'clock. And he would have snow shipped in. And I'm sure people in Minnesota are going, oh, wow, snow. How great, how novel. Uh, But he would have snow uh, shipped in. And and there were carolers, and there was arts and crafts, and there were fortune tellers, and giant buffets, and food, and huge Viennese dessert tables. It was just so decadent and so bizarre. And we would obviously bring the kids. My kids were little at the time. And, you know, I'm sitting there doing some arts and crafts project with my daughter, Annie, and Carrie Fisher. And you're sitting at a table having dinner with Harrison Ford and Nick Nolte. Those were the kind of parties. It was like every huge celebrity, every producer, every major agent. This was the party. This was the place to go. And... That was fantastic. And again, it just got bigger and bigger and bigger. And I forget the name of the film that Jim directed. Oh, God, it was something with Reese Witherspoon and um, Owen Wilson. And she was like a softball player or he was a baseball player. Anyway, bomb. He's like this just colossal bomb. And... That was the end of the Christmas parties, and I don't think his deal is uh, still going on there at MGM. Later, 
uh, I wrote a spec screenplay with Robin Schiff, and we sold it to MGM. Yay! This was like about 2002, and like I mentioned, uh, MGM departed the Culver City lot in 1986. It was taken over by Sony. So Robin and I sell our screenplay, and we go to MGM for notes, but by then, MGM was in a high-rise in Century City, so uh, there was just no ambience whatsoever. Plus, at the end of the day, they never made the movie. What's going on there now? Well, this was the lot. It's not exactly now, but this is the lot where they did King of Queens. They did Married with Children. Uh, They do the Goldbergs there. They did Party of Five. Uh, Ray Donovan they do on the Sony lot. Insecure. Also, uh, a lot of game shows. They do Shark Tank, Wheel of Fortune, and Jeopardy. The Alex Trebek stage at Sony Pictures Studio. Yes. Um, so that's pretty much what the lot is used for and an occasional movie. And so the last time I was there was actually right before the pandemic to watch Shark Tank. And, uh, and I've been to Jeopardy a few times. But it's kind of fun to to go to the lot and then go to the commissary. But the commissary is in a different place and it's all different. And uh, you you don't, don't see the celebrities. I want to end by saying there was one other celebrity that I saw in the commissary in 1980. And if you know me, you know this was the celebrity of celebrities. This was maybe two weeks before she passed away. Natalie Wood walked into the commissary that I actually got to see Natalie Wood live and in person. So for... All the the good and bad of MGM, to me, it's distilled into that one moment because it was so exciting to see Natalie Wood. And yet, when I think of that memory, of course, there is so much sadness that's associated with it because she passed away a couple of weeks later. Yeah. So that is my look at MGM. And uh, if you want to comment on it, my email address is hollywoodlevine at outlook.com, hollywoodlevine at outlook.com. Our thanks to Adam and Susie Meister-Butler, Howard Hoffman, John Wolford, Bruce, and Jason Miller. I am also on Twitter, at Ken Levine. I am on Instagram, Hollywood and Levine. And I have been posting uh, a number of cartoons over the last four weeks. So if you're curious as to what my cartoons look like, please follow me on Instagram, Hollywood and Levine. Coming back next week with a fun interview, that and much more as we continue year six of Hollywood and Levine. Thanks so much for listening. Bye-bye.
Hollywood and the Vine.